Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I am once again solo here. And today I'm speaking with Dan Gerard from Alameda County out in California. We're going to talk about an exciting new piece of technology that they're trialing out there. And uh, I think this might this might change a lot. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for talking to me. And uh, tell us a little about yourself before we get into this program. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Dan Gerard. I, I got my uh, EMT card in 1981, and I got my paramedic card uh, in 1985. And I rode on the North Ward First Aid Squad in New Jersey, if you could believe that. Jersey. I was in North yeah, yeah. So I, I was an EMT and paramedic in Newark, New Jersey for 20 years. I worked at uh, St. Barnabas. I worked at Jersey City because nobody ever has like one job, right? Well, of course and, not. Of course not. And uh, and I've done like a ton of other things. I did the ambulance service redesign in Hong Kong. I was a professor at George Washington uh, University. And uh, now I'm the president of the International Association of EMS Chiefs. And I'm the uh, EMS coordinator here in Alameda, California. And, uh, you know, as they say, you know, it rarely rains in California. So, uh, you know, we're kind of, in, you know, we enjoy the weather and we're having a good time out here. It's certainly better weather in anywhere in California than in New Jersey at, uh, at any time, any time uh, of the year. Unless you're in Death Valley where it's like 140, but yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a bit much. I'm not going to, I'm not about that. <laughs> but so I, I wanted to talk to you today because there was, you recently wrote an article um, about a system that you're using to identify seizures in the field and it's called the Cerebell system. Um, again, we're not advertising for this system. I just think that it's a really impressive system. I think the trial you guys are doing is very fascinating and I think it can change a lot of things in the field. So walk me through, I guess, how you found the Cerebell system. And then what, like what it's for, what the applications are. And I know that you're involved with the San Francisco Department of Public Health as well in getting this system out. So what is it? What are you looking to do? And let's, let's talk about the system and its application. So the, uh, so the, the, you know, it's kind of funny. There were a couple of things that were going on in tandem at um, when when we uh, first were approached about the cerebell system, the first thing was was that my emergency department had this device, which was the cerebell device, and it was a portable EEG machine about the size of a portable radio. Now, normally, uh, an EEG, you know, you need to have an, uh, an electrophysiology technician come in and place the electrodes on the head, and then you need a neurologist to read the EEG. And so there's generally, even in like a big institution, you know, there's generally a time constraint on getting, on getting this done. But the Cerebell device, the headband is easy to place. And the EEG actually has an algorithm and it'll, you know, it'll, it'll, it can, you know, it'll figure out what's going on in the brain. And we had these uh, three calls that kind of happened at one time. Uh, the first one was this patient that was having these focal motor seizures, but he had never had them before. And so when he was relaying this information to the paramedics, you know, he's conscious He's oriented. This had never, ever happened to him before. And he's got these muscle tremors. So, you know, my guys are kind of like running through the, you know, they're running through the list of diagnoses in their head. And they're like, maybe it's Parkinson's. You know, they, you know, so like that was kind of like at the top, but they really weren't too sure. And then, you know, they went to the hospital. And then when we did the follow-up on a patient, you know, we come to find out that, you know, he had the, the, this uh, focal motor seizure. It's like, oh, wow. You know, so, you know, there was a little bit of education there. Again, this was a first-time event for this patient, you know, so there was no history there. And then we had a couple of calls where these patients had these, what, what are called absence seizures. 
where patients just kind of, you know, they might stare off into space or they blank out. And one of the patients uh, kind of had, he was having um, these status absence seizures. So even though they weren't tonic clonic uh, type seizures that uh, status seizures that we're normally used to seeing, uh, you know, they still have a profound impact on the brain. They're not good for the brain at all. And, but, you know, like my guy, you know, my guys didn't realize it. Uh, and they, you know, they brought the patient in the hospital and the uh, ED medical director, she called me up and she said, Hey, you know, you had these two patients and, you know, she explained it to me and I said, Oh, wow. Is there anything different? My guys could have did. And I said, no, no, no. I mean, they, you know, they did everything that they were supposed to do. I said, well, how did you guys know? She said, well, we have this device, the cerebral device. And, you know, we popped it on the guy's head and, you know, like we knew. I was like, all right, well, you know, that, that sounds pretty cool. And then my county medical director, uh, Carl Spohr, he's really into research. He's very progressive and he's very pro, uh, he's very pro EMS. And he contacted me and he said, hey, listen, you know, would you like to uh, trial this device? And we have always been um, a, uh, a first adopter, if you will. And so whether it was for 12 leads, um, you know, when we first started the uh, cardiac arrest receiving centers, we had the auto pulse, the geezer squeezer, if you kind of remember that, the, you know, we use the Lucas device now, but we had the geezer squeezer for a little bit. And, uh, you know, so we were always first adopters and we always try to participate in studies. Um, and uh, I had tried to get in on another study, but I, you know, I was a little bit late in stepping up for it. And that was for the uh, heads up CPR device. Right. And uh, but, you know, he you know, he said to me, he goes, hey, you know, do you want to try the cerebral device? And I said, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Our union was on board. It was an easy sell to them. And uh, and, our, and my medical director, my fire department medical director, uh, Mary Mercer, absolutely fabulous. You know, she was right there with us. And Dr. Mercer, uh, having spoken to her before you and I talked, she is absolutely on board with the program. She's hundred percent behind it, which speaks to the importance of having a progressive medical director who wants to actively work to make the system better. Um, and I, I feel like that's something that is somewhat lacking in a lot of programs, which of course could, you and I could talk about that for a whole other episode, I'm sure. Um, but the, the importance of being early adopters is you can't, speak to it enough, right? So we have, I think one of the things that happens in EMS a lot is we have these systems that might be able to make a difference, might be able to make a system work better, might lead to better patient outcomes, better patient treatments, but we're, I don't want to say afraid, but I don't know that I have a better word for it to adopt new programs because there's always like a what if, right? So, and it's with anything. There's like, well, if we change this, things might get worse. So we just won't do it. And we'll just kind of keep the status quo. Uh, so I will tell you, you know, when I when I was still in New Jersey, one of the things I did when I worked for St. Barnabas Healthcare System, which I know it's now like RWJ St. Barnabas. Yeah, every, everybody is all all mixed together now in the state. Yeah. I know they keep adding letters at a certain point. It's not going to fit on the side of the building. Uh, I ran MTAC. And one of the things I did at MTAC was... Uh, one of my uh, coordinators, uh, he was he had just graduated from the MPH program at New York Medical College, and I said, "Let's uh, let's set up a cardiac arrest registry and let's see how we're doing." 
And so uh, at the time, I was the chair of the paramedic association for the National Association of EMTs. And I had like all these national contacts. So he said, how do I do that? I said, don't worry, I know these two guys. So I called up Copass and Eisenberg in Washington State. And they sent me like all this stuff. They just like kept emailing me all this stuff, their spreadsheets and all this stuff and we set up a cardiac you know we set up this cardiac arrest tracking system and we came to find out that it was like a fraction of a fraction of a percent was our survival rate so we said we needed to get aeds and we needed to get uh we needed to get uh defibrillators uh we i'm sorry we needed to uh improve our cpr so we had cpr training um we found a champion within the healthcare system to help us get aeds we got aeds and then after about six months you know the cardiac arrest rate went to about four percent which was pretty good because we really didn't have cardiac arrest receiving centers like we were still bringing patients to like irvington general right Union just going, going to the hospital as opposed to a resuscitation center yeah yeah and you know it was like a whole process and so you know, we knew that there were other pieces that were missing and Copass and Eisenberg. I have to tell you, those guys at that time, you know, mid 90s, they were really rock stars and they really shared their they they offered to get on the phone with like the president of North of North Beth Israel and tell him what he needed to do and why it was important. And this is like pre-resuscitation academy, pre yeah. all those just really, really, you know, really, really good guys. And then, so, you know, conversely, like we wanted to look at trauma stats and, you know, so now, like, I, I mean, I knew Norman McSwain and I was, you know, and I was good friends with Norman. So I called Norman up and he told us some of the things that we needed to do. And the hard part was, was like getting like university hospital was our trauma center, you know, they're, you know, and the only other closest trauma center after that was like Jersey city or Morristown and Irvington. I wasn't going to either one of those. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and so, but university hospital, um, you know, like the trauma registrar and some of the people that are just, you know, like weren't amenable to kind of working with us to try to solve, you know, try to solve the problem or try to get an understanding of how we could provide better, better trauma care. So to speak directly to what you said, like having champions and having people that are buying off on your vision are, are critically important to success. And that's, I think that's the biggest thing that's faced. Well, one of the biggest things I should say that's facing EMS now is typically your medical director tends to be a physician who happens to be an emergency physician and their exposure to EMS might be limited or zero. So, you know, if you're working in a project and you're trying to better your treatments or better your clinical care, and you have someone who doesn't even understand how pre-hospital medicine works, that's very difficult to do, which is why I think we have to look to states like, you know, Florida, Texas, California, where you have progressive people. Um, at least in medicine, who are trying to, pr to progress the practice. So this, this cerebral system, it, it's very fascinating to me because it operates as a 10 lead system in a headband that just kind of wraps around the patient's head. Most people, when they see EEGs, they're accustomed to seeing like the head dome and you know people have to stay in, in the hospital overnight doing sleep studies and, and all that. This seems... This almost seems like the work smarter, not harder type of solution to, to EEGs, right? Where like in the field, you're worried, like you don't necessarily even have to know how to read EEGs or you should have a rudimentary understanding of it where 
essentially when you're looking at EEG, if you see a lot more spikes than you feel like you should see, it's probably a seizure. And if it's flat, there's no brain activity. Um, sort of similar to how we interpret STEMIs, where there's a million different things that you can interpret from looking at a 12 lead EKG, but predominantly we're worried about ST elevation, non-ST elevation. Right. You can get down into like axis deviations, bundles and conduction delays and all that kind of stuff. But those are the big things that that seems like what this how this works to me, um, that that's kind of the the analogy I can make in my head. Tell us a little bit about like how the system actually works. I know I, I know we went through like our we're looking to see, you know, what type of seizures they're having. But how do you envision the system working and what are what do you want to do with this system, provided that it actually gives you the results you're looking for? So the, the whole, so first of all, the device, the efficacy and the efficiency of the device in the hospital setting, in the emergency department and in the ICU um, has been demonstrated because it's FDA approved for use inside the hospital. So I want to make sure that, you know, um, everyone who's listening in understands yeah. that. And that's a, that's a big thing because that means that we can use it. There's no, it's not a, it's not a weird off label use. It's not experimental. It's already approved. It's already done. Anyone can use it. We're just putting it on ambulances now. And so right now, our whole, the whole purpose of the study that we're you, that we're doing right now is to make sure that we can receive the same, that we can obtain the same quality EEG that would be obtained in the ER and the ICU. Because then after that, the machine actually has an algorithm inside that reads the EEG and will tell you when the patient is seizing. I'm not saying that at a certain point in the future, you know, we're not going to circle back around. Like we didn't do any training with our paramedics how to read an EEG. You know, that may come at a later time because they can see the EEG just like you can see the 12 feet if you're using a life pack or a Zoll, whatever the device of the week is. Um, so, you know, we're, you know, we're going to come back to that, but we just want to see if we can use the device, obtain an EEG and also transmit it to the hospital. And that's the entire goal right now. And then once we know that now the app, you know, now we can not only use that device and we're only looking for patients um, that are having uh, these absent seizures, or they might have focal motor seizures, or even patients that are having like full-blown tonic-clonic seizures, you know, will you know generalized seizures, you know, will you know will obtain those as well. Uh, and we're looking um, primarily in obviously patients with with seizure history, altered mental status, and stroke. What are the other areas we can use it in? Well the device can also be used to detect large vessel occlusion stroke. Now, if you think about it, you might have dozens of primary stroke centers that can do, uh, you know, that can, uh, you know, that can um, administer like thrombolytics and treat patients, but to do clot removal and large vessel occlusion strokes, there's only X number of places that can do that, that have that capability. So to be able to identify those patients in the field and cut out a step, you know, if you can get those patients to the correct facility immediately, 
it has the same impact as it, as it does for identifying patients with trauma. The other issue, uh, the other uh, case that we can look at is traumatic brain injury. Patients that have uh, occult traumatic brain injury, your nursing home patients, patients that might have suffered an injury the day before, and now they're, per, you know, and they, they might have a subdural bleed that took a day or two to develop. You know, so now, you know, I've identified this patient instead of going to the local ED, you know, I know that this is a trauma patient, this is a traumatic brain injury. So, uh, and those are just, those are just the ones right off the top. Um, It's sort of like, I remember when we first started using 12 leads when I was at St. Barnabas, and that was um, like, nine, you know, 1989, 1990, 1991. And in the very beginning, I said, well, you know, we're just going to use this to identify STEMI, decrease toward a drug time, you know, because they weren't doing angioplasty. Then it was maybe like a couple of years later, they started doing right. angioplasty. But, you know, then there was this, like this one call and he said, you know, we had this major trauma patient, he, you know, he slammed his chest into the steering wheel and the uh, ED doc at the time was this guy, Jim McEnroe, he said, we're do a 12 lead on him. Let's see if he has myocardial contusion. And, you know, that immediately started to, you know, like, oh, wow. Yeah. And, know, the, and sh- we talked about this off the air. Like there, there's a, when you're looking at EKGs, there's a million things that you can determine. And it's, it's, it's a Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Like you, you learn how to identify STEMIs and you're like, yeah, I can do this on, on everything. And then the more you learn about EKGs, you're like, oh, I can also determine, you know, hypokalemia, hyperkalemia. I can see if there's a conduction defect. I can see if there's an axis deviation or a bundle branch block and all these other things. And that, that's what this feels like to me. Like one of the things that we, we talked about on the show is we were very big fans of, you know, bleeding edge technology, right? You guys are the first in the country to be trying this in the field. And as far as the application is, I know you said you hadn't really taught any of the medics how to use it. The application of it, it seems to be, for lack of a better term, idiot proof, because it's a headband that tightens to the patient's head. There's different, there's 10 different dials. Um, you can adjust it. And then once you actually push, like lock the button in place, conductive gel is placed on the patient's head. And that's how they read the EKG. There is an automated system. All this we listed in the show notes and uh, I'm going to link to the website as well. <clears throat> but essentially what ends up happening is the reading goes right to your phone. The phone can be transferred to whatever hospital you go to. There's also a big blinking red screen that says the patient's having a seizure at that time. And it also logs similar to a, a life pack, which is from physio, which is what I'm accustomed to using. It, you can also log when you perform an intervention. So you can see in real time, um, a, a patient's EEG th- showing their seizures, you give them lorazepam, it can show like when you gave it. And it can also show their seizure threshold, which I think is, is incredibly fascinating. Um, I think that there's a lot of implications for resuscitation that can happen with it as well. You know, you, how often do we go to pronouncements or to cardiac arrests and we're not really sure how long the patient's been down, you know, are they asystolic as a PEA? And that's something that you can add to and see if they actually have brain waves in their EEG, which between, you know, new findings with cardiac monitors, pre-hospital ultrasound, and this, I'm sure resuscitation in five years is going to look very, very different, um, which is very exciting. When you put this out, or when you were first talking to your staff about putting this out, did you receive any pushback at all about applying this new technology or was it more interesting questions? No, I, I think that the, I wouldn't say pushback. I think that there was um, the the biggest question that they had was how long is it going to take 
to put the head, you know, how long was it going to be to put the, because like when I first started to broach the topic with them, you know, I didn't have a lot of detail. I didn't, well, I didn't provide a lot of detail. And so that they were like, well, how long is it going to take to put on the guy's head? And realistically, I, I think we're up to about 10 applications right now because the study is still ongoing, right. Uh, right. but we have it down to like two minutes. Well, that's, uh, it, and it's, I, it's a, it's a headband. It, it's not, I, I think it's, it's sort of like when, you know, like, how do you put a Lucas device on? You, it can take you 15 minutes to put a Lucas device on, but once you know how to do it and you've done it a couple of times, you know, well, you it, know your, th- your timing reduces. I, I think back to like when we first started to do the 12 leads. And so um, I was working as a tech in the ER at Barnabas. And so when they said you were going to take the Marquette, I knew the Marquette wasn't like heavy. It, it really wasn't heavy. And then, you know, some of the medics were like, oh, it's going to take too long. I'm like, no, it takes like a minute to put the leads on. And realistically, like you don't even think about it now, like when you do a 12 lead, like how long that it takes you. I mean, the worst scenario that kind of comes up for you with a 12 lead is that, you know, you don't have good contact with the electrodes and, you know, you got to clean a little bit, maybe braid the skin, you know, to get a, you know, to get a good 12 lead. And that was the only pushback that I got was, you know, like, how long is this going to take? You know, and I said, well, you know, I have, I have a practice headband here. I said, just put it on, snap it on the guy's head and that's it, you know? And well, it, one of the questions that I, I had when I was looking at it is, I, and obviously you can read an EKG, an EEG through someone's hair, but when you're applying the conductive jelly, does that have any interference at all? Because I, I, I would think that would be one of the interfering factors of applying it. You know, we've, you know, some of the guys we have, um, so, you know, some of the guys here are surfers and, and, and my, in department. California, what? Yeah. Just, there's just a couple Since of them. When? I mean, they have like, you know, like they have like really thick hair and they've like put this thing on themselves, you know, just to see how it worked. And they, and we were able to, you know, get good contact and, you know, obtain good EGs. And we haven't, um, now I'm probably going to jinx this, right? Like we've applied it 10 times. We've have 10 good quality EEGs that we've obtained and, uh, and without any, you know, without any issue, without any problems. So what, what's the sample size you're looking to get before you've, you've gotten a, what you've determined to be a good number? Well, they we're looking between, we really want to concentrate on patients with altered mental status and a uh, seizure. And we're looking between 20 and 40 because we're just looking at the ability to obtain a high, uh, to obtain a high quality uh, EEG. And so far we've been very successful in that point. I don't think we've had a bad EEG yet. When I looked at the, when I looked at the uh, results today, um, you know, it didn't appear that we had any bad EEGs. Which is incredible because, again, just getting clean tracing is just from an, an EKG in the field is, is difficult enough sometimes. Um, so if I'm a project manager or project director or you know, coordinator and I'm looking to put a program like this out in the field, something that's very, very new despite having FDA approval, it's already in hospitals. Walk me through the process from, I guess, concept to execution in getting this out into the field what what type of buy-in did you have to get you know who did you have to recruit because i'm thinking of people in in other states that might be might have less progressive medical directors or might have less enthusiastic staff is there 
I don't want to say if there's, is there any trick, but how, how would you advise someone to be like, Hey, listen, we have this new piece of technology. It might actually make a lot of difference for a lot of patients. This might work. How, how would you, I guess, how did you approach that? And then how would you approach someone who was resistant to it? So, you know, I always use the EK, I always use the 12 lead example. Um, and the first step in that whole process was the cardiologist. And so for us, it was the neurologist and finding that champion. And we found her in the medical school at UCSF. Um, and, you know, and she wanted to step up and, and do this study. And she was, and again, she's very pro uh, EMS. She, you know, she bit off on this full time. She gathered a bunch of resources. Uh, she had already been working with the Cerebell people. And so, you know, this and 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 she had all of this stuff already in place, you know, how to do the study, etc. It was a little bit of a process with the IRB and everything else. I mean, that's all back end sort of stuff. Sure. Nothing that can't sure. be overcome, you know, uh, nothing that can't be um that can't be worked through. Um, the emergency department um, medical director was critically important, you know, because they were already using the device. They understood the value of the device, you know, so it was not only, you know, the emergency department person, but the neurologist at the end of the day that was going to receive these patients, etc. And they were the two key people. And then obviously my medical director, and then the county, uh, and then the county medical director. And I would, um, I would, uh, I, I would give the county medical director. I would kind of put them on the same par, uh, at the same level as this. You know, like they're the state EMS agency. You know, so like if you can imagine fifty-one counties, fifty-one different medical directors, right? It could get a little unwieldy at a certain point. But you know, having the medic, you know, having both my fire department medical director and the uh, county medical director and the county medical director was the guy who, you know, initially approached, you know, approached us. So, you know, he, uh, you know, he had sort of lined most of this up to begin with, but, you know, those are the, you know, those are the key things. And so if you were going to do something, let's say, let's say you were looking at doing POCUS or Reboa, right. Uh, it would be that trauma center, you know, medical director, Right. You know, who's ever head of the trauma center, the surgeon that's in charge, the chief of surgery at the trauma center. It's going to be your local medical director and whoever you're going to get to bite off on it at the, at the state of uh, in the state of New Jersey. Uh, and then the other key part of this was my union, um, which which was local uh, 689 and uh, not having union support could have absolutely, you know, the union could have turned around and said no, but we have like an excellent rapport with our union on the clinical end and on the medical end. And a part of that is like this mutual respect. Like we don't use QI as a tool for punishment. I mean, legally, imagine that. Well, no, I mean, legally you can't right? like under the Medicare regulations, you can't use QI right. as, you know, you can't use QI as discipline. Um, but, you know, we had, you know, we had a, an excellent relationship with our union. And so when we sat down with them and we chatted with them about it and they, you know, they understood the importance of the device. They're like, you know, where do we sign up? 
And I think it's very interesting to have, and it, it, it sort of is backwards to the way that it tends to work in EMS. You had a, a hospital that already knew of the program, that knew of the system, that knows how it works, and they kind of transmitted that to EMS, which is not usually how it occurs. And I think one of the things that tends to inhibit progress, whenever whether it's a new device or new medication, is I think EMS a lot of times tends to get that technology, and then we have to convince a whole hospital system to use it. And you saw there were examples of that with ketamine and I'm sure with 12 leads back in the day. Um, if I'm in a system and I, and I hear this show and I'm like, God, Dan Gerard's got some really good points. I should probably talk to him about this. Um, and I want to try and implement a system like this. If I'm an EMS system with a hospital that's unaware of these things, how, how do you, how do you think you start kind of chipping away at that resistance to put this system into practice? Is it like, is it just, is it just, you know, continuous repetition like we have this here's this data here's this program or do you think that there's i guess more effective ways of trying to get this into your system you know the the thing that's most crucial for me um and and don't get me wrong i mean it, it eats up it eats up a portion of your time but it's going to those qi meetings for the different programs whether we talk about STEMI, stroke or trauma peds whatever it is and making those contacts and making those relationships and having those discussions because sometimes people know people and they're willing to make the con connection and make the argument for you um you know sometimes people know manufacturers of devices and they're willing to step up and bring in their uh QI people or their, um, their technical experts to run a study, which takes a huge load off of you, or they'll provide you the templates and everything else that you need. So, you know, I, I always start at that. What, who are you talking to, you know, every week? And, and it has to be, you know, it has to be like a weekly or a monthly sort of thing. You know, you have to make out, you know, you have to reach across the aisle and do those things. I mean, like the biggest issue, you know, we struggle with, and everybody struggles with this, is APOT, right? Your wall times mm -hmm. and the emergency department. I go to like all those, I go into... I go to all those meetings, like the charge nurses at a lot of the hospitals know me. So like when I walk in to the emergency department, the charge nurses is, is Dan's ambulance waiting to be, you know, like mm -hmm. that's the first word that comes out of their mouth. And I don't go in there with a stick, you know, and I don't go, I, I mean, it'd be easily for, for me to like, you know, bang on the table and say, I'm making an impal complaint against right. you. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, the other side of the coin is, you know, like I realize like what's going on in the hospital and I realize what's going on out in the field. But, you know, I have those discussions all the time. So going to those meetings and meeting the key people is critically important. You have to do that. That's an investment in success for you. Um, liaising with vendors for different products and different services uh, even, you know, I mean, because if I saw the Cerebell device like two years ago and I was cognizant of it, I probably would have looked to make a connection with that guy because I would have saw the value. I mean, like a portable EEG, the size of, yeah. of a portable radio. I mean, I don't know what it costs. All right. So like, don't ask me about money yet. Um, but 
I would want to know more about that. And I would want to see how I could leverage that guy for education or, you know, whatever else that he has. Well, and, um, and even just the, and like I said, the, the idea, it, you, you would think that with technology, like an EEG, it's been around for so long that something had to evolve from it. Right. Like it's, it's a question that we always ask now in the 21st century. It's like, you know, we don't, we, I was promised flying cars when I was a kid in, in the year 2000. You know, so I think we look at a lot of older sort of outmoded technologies, like somebody has had to ha, has to have done it better at this point. Um, and I, I do kind of love I mean, there again, there's another conversation about everything going to our cell phones. But I do love the idea of being able to do a more holistic assessment to guide treatment in the back of the truck between, you know, now being able to do an EEG and POCUS and, you know, there's 12 leads you can send to and through your phone. I, I think all of that is, is phenomenal. And it's very, very, you know, advanced and progressive for the time. Um, when, and I know that you said that you haven't done any training with your staff so far, it's just really the application. Have you laid out sort of a, a process for how you want to train the staff with it? Or are you not looking to have the staff interpret EEGs so much as just interpret the, the algorithm and then process the patient through the hospital that way? You know, it's, it's sort of, you know, I look at it sort of like this. Um, when they first proposed EKGs to us, you know, the first thing everybody said, well, they said, well, you know, the market will interpret it. You don't have to do anything. And Jay said, no, no, no. The paramedics need to know how to read the 12th lead. And so there was like a, a whole process there. I envision this that once we prove that we can utilize the device in the field, then the next step is to come back and teach the basics of EEG. You know, if you think about it, I don't know how long you've been in the field, but if you think about like when you first learned about 12 lead, like when I first learned about 12 lead, um, like nobody told me about Scarbosi's criteria, right? Like nobody, like, you know, nobody talked, right? You were laughing, <laughs> but you know stuff, that- Stuff that we'd rather forget about now too. <laughs> no, no, no. But you, you, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, like yeah. all of these, you know, all of these different diet, you know, all these different diagnostic clues, you know, you learned how to identify STEMI, right? You know, you learned like, if I see it in this lead, you know, it's an inferior wall, you learn the, and so that's how I sort of envision the EEG is that we'll come back and we'll say, when somebody's seizing, this is what you're going to see on the EEG. And we'll, you know, and we'll probably do like pattern recognition sort of like what you did, like when you first learned like second degree type one, second degree type two, you know, like you kind of look for certain patterns, right? right. Mm -hmm. We'll do that same thing with basic EEG. So they'll have a basic understanding. And then, you know, we'll kind of come back and build in like, this is what you see with large vessel occlusion. This is what you see with traumatic brain injury. And then over a period of time, you know, that screen, the alerting algorithm is still going to be important. But, you know, you will also be able to look at the device and say, wait a second, you know, I'm going to kind of override this because I see something here. Sort of like what we told medics in the very beginning with, you know, with 12 leads, if there's something that's sticking up on the back, if the hairs are sticking up on the back of your neck, you know, go with that gut feeling. And I, you know, and it'll be the same thing with EEGs. And 
and you know, like in five or 10 years, I, I, I'm enthused about what we'll learn and what we'll know at that point from using the device day in and day out. And especially like in those high volume systems, you know, that information that's going to come out and that's going to be able to be shared. Right. And it, it sounds like it's similar to when you get an, a, an EKG printed out and it says like acute MI suspected. And a lot of times those algorithms are correct, but oftentimes they're not. So that's where it's the, the provider interpretation. So it's exciting to, to know that they'll be able to, you know, learn certain pattern recognition be like, listen, this one was artifacted. We happen to go over a bump at this certain time where, you know, you can have field providers make the change. But one way or the other, I do like that you can still have some kind of EEG pattern and like, I think this is this, but I'm going to send it to a neuro who's actually going to interpret it in the hospital. Oh yeah. And you can, you know, you get, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, the screen isn't terribly big, you know, but you get a full EEG on there. So, and that is getting transmitted as long as, as well as whatever information the algorithm determines, you know, like this patient's having a seizure, et cetera. You know, that's getting pushed out to, you know, to the concerned individuals at the, you know, at the time. And this will be, I, you know, if you're familiar with like LifeNet or Philips Corsium, uh, you know, this will be sort of in the in the same ballywick as well. You know, this will go up to the cloud. Anybody will be able to access it, pull it down and look at it and they'll be able to see it um, in real time. You know, so like a lot of these new monitor, you know, a lot of the new uh, monitors that we have now, the cardiac monitors, you know, have that telehealth capability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that will, you know, and the, this EEG has that already built in, you know, that you're going to see this real time. So I, I got one more question for you and I, I do kind of want to unpack it a little bit before we get out of here. Um, paramedics, I mean, all EMS workers, but paramedics specifically um, as a culture tend to be kind of resistant to change. So it, it feels like, and I, I know that, that even though you're out in the, on the left coast, you're still a Jersey guy. Um, how I, I want to figure out how I want to ask this without being too controversial. Um, if you have staff that, and I, we, we talked about staff pushback, but when, whenever you're rolling out a new device into the field or new technology into the field, there tends to be sort of um, an ethos of this isn't my job. Right. So if I'm working in a system like that, because we, we do talk to people all across the country what is what's Dan Gerard's advice to be like, here's a new thing. It's good to try, get it out into the field when you have, you know, staff medics who will just be like, it's not my job to do this. I'm not going to participate in it. How do you work to get that buy-in from your staff where like, I, I know you mentioned you were fortunate enough to have staff that was very on board with this type of program. We know, you know, <laughs> the medics in New Jersey are not the same as medics in California or Idaho or wherever we are. Um, and specifically in our area, we tend to have medics with, um, we'll, we'll call them uh, pride. Um, I think it's a, I think that's a good word for New Jersey medics, right? Yeah, pride. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> so how do you, how would you suggest getting staff buy-in for this new thing that it might come across as like, this is a new instead of it being a new exciting technology to help, you know, better patient treatment, it might come across as a new technology that is just another thing you have to do, right? That here's one more thing to add to your skill set that you're not going to get compensated for. Here's another thing that you have to do. How do you 
get to the staff level and be like, this is why we're doing it. This is an important thing. It can actually change things without it sounding like, you know, a platitude. You know, I always go back to the case study concept and I, and I told the Cerebell people this, I said, you know, the feedback on the first couple of cases you know, especially when you determine that, you know, somebody's having one of these absence seizures is going to be critically important. Uh, we saw the same thing with 12 lead EKGs. Um, you know, when we saw, uh, when I was back East and we first implemented the program, uh, that door to drug time and the outcome, you know, you would see these patients and they would come in, they'd have these cr crushing chest pain, they were gray, etc. You would hit the door, um, you know, they would do another 12 lead when you got there, you had already been through the screening checklist, they just verified ev everything. And we had patients within 40 minutes getting TPA. And like, all of a sudden, they were fine. They were like, they wanted to go home. And when you saw this, and you experienced it, you know, when you got to see it, it became very real to you because, you know, I have news for you as, as great of a medical director that Jay was, and we had an excellent clinical uh, coordinator um, in Mary Cormish. A lot of guys were like, I got to carry the Marquette. Like I have to carry two EKGs into yeah. the house. But when they started to see this, you know, they had a greater appreciation when we instituted the uh, when we instituted the um, not uh, the auto pulse device. Um, you know, we had this it was all part of the system of care and we were going to go to like a cardiac arrest receiving center and, you know, we were going to do this and we trained with the device and we implemented the device. So first day, first day, a guy that's a, an excellent medic here an excellent Medicare. They had a cardiac arrest, like the first, like five, 10 minutes of cardiac arrest. The, 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 um, the ALS engine was saying, should we put this on him? He's like, no, because, you know, he's 62 years old. He's a diabetic. He has two previous MIs. He's got hypertension. Like he had like this whole list of things and he was asystolic. So like, what, so now you're, you're like, look at all screen, but you, you kind of know what the outcome is going to be here. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it feels predictable, but still. <laughs> so so one of the guys says, well, let's just see how it works, right? Yeah. They put it on the guy, and the next day they visited him in the hospital, and he was sitting up in the bed talking to them. That's that's incredible. That And stories like that are, are very cool, and they are more few and far between than I'd like them to be. And I, I like the idea of there being a device to put out into the field where we're, we are very good, I think, as a system at identifying just strokes broadly, you know, um, where you have someone like, oh, okay, they, they're suddenly weak on one side, boom, stroke. I think we're very good at identifying, you know, tonic-clonic seizures, the, you know, the things that we see on a daily basis. And it's, it's always interesting to me to see medical technology growing to find more of the I guess, more specific findings that maybe as an industry, we weren't paying enough attention to um, up, up until very recently. So I, I, I do think that there's somewhat of a, an attitude of like, oh, well, you know, now we have to do all this extra stuff. And it's like, well, I, I don't know, all that extra stuff was, was there. It's just now we can identify it a little bit more. Um, I, I, I'm really excited to hear about the results of these studies. Um, 
you know, super excited to have you and Dr. Martin on to let us know the results. Um, and uh, something I probably should have asked you in the beginning, Dan, what, what are you the most excited about for this? I, I know that we've talked about pretty much everybody else, but what, what is this in, what are you looking forward to the most to find out? I, I'm, I'm looking forward in the fact that, you know, this represents a sea change, right? We're going to plant the flag here. And a year from now, or a, after we prove that the device can be applied in the field, a year after it's implemented into a, a, into a system of care where we change protocols and we change algorithms because we know we get a high quality EEG. And now we know that the information is accurate and we need to change our protocols for seizure, altered mental status, and stroke, right? That first day, a year later, after we plant the flag, when we look back and the lives that we've changed, you know, and that increase in survivability, that reduction in disability, then we start to get the appreciation, you know, um, the greater implication is going to be seen five years, 10 years down the road from now. And those are the things that are really exciting for me. You know, that, you know, that's what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking to the future. I'm, I'm not really looking in the rear view. Right. I, I'm, I'm very excited to hear what you guys find out. Dan Gerard from Alameda County. Thank you so much for coming on to the show for the overrun. I'm Ed Bowder and we'll talk to you all next time.